0: Hey, Deserving Listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would answer patron emails. This first patron email is from patron Julia. She writes, I've recently gotten a job working with kids 12 to 17 with mental health issues in a residential treatment facility, and I'm having a bit of trouble knowing my place with them. These kids have been through an insane amount of trauma, and as I am not their parent nor their therapist, I'm having a hard time making a place for myself. I care about them a lot, and I want them to know that I care, and I don't want to be the bad guy. It also doesn't help that my coworkers are usually just sitting on their phones, and it seems that me and them aren't on the same page since they don't really care to be there. Also, since I am new, the kids don't respect me and don't listen to my directions. One girl said to me that it's because they don't know me and they have trust issues. I have knowledge about attachment issues, thanks to your deep dive, but I've recently learned about reactive attachment disorder and I'm not too familiar with it. So is there any advice you can give me? What's my place with these kids? How should I treat them? How do I make them respect me more? End of email. Yeah. uh, Well, first off, just a little bit about reactive attachment. Often this is applied. I've talked about this before in other episodes. Often this is applied when someone, uh, you know, a teenager has, it's it's over applied is what I'll say, because the DSM doesn't have um, a full array of labels for people with issues. Uh, The the DSM privileges and um, privileges certain issues for humans that involve suffering and what we might consider disordered behavior. Um, It doesn't include all of suffering. Uh, there's a lot of suffering that's include that's that's excluded from the DSM. So um, it could be reactive attachment that you're running into with the kids, but it's probably uh, a lot of other things just like they have been treated badly. They're going through grief. They have a lot of really entrenched defense mechanisms that are self-defeating. And there's no real DSM diagnosis for that sort of thing. So, you know, be mindful of that. But you're not a clinician, so it doesn't really matter what we're talking about here because um, you really shouldn't be concerning yourself too much with the condition since you're not a clinician. Um, So any advice that I can give you? Yeah, the first is is to recognize that these are really tough places of work. You're working 12 to 17 mental health issues, residential treatment facility. Now, given the fact that you're saying that um, your co-workers, you know, it doesn't help that your co-workers are usually just sitting on their phones. I'm guessing based on that, that uh, it's probably a larger facility. I'm guessing, you know, 10 to 20 kids or something. Usually that's the case. That's a really, really tough place to work. I've worked in facilities like that a lot of times what you're doing is damage control. Um, You're, you don't, the damage is so great that the kids come in with such high needs. And as that one person told you, they have trust issues and they have a lot of legitimate anger and transference uh, with you, especially if you're there really trying to connect with them. They might begin to transfer a lot of their feelings from their parents and other people onto you. So, um, even when things are going well, they might be disrespecting you so it's it 's a tough place to work, and the expectations have to be reflective of that reality. Uh, a lot of times you 're watching train wrecks happen before your eyes it 's very stressful you know like you 'll see a kid that um, you just see has been pushed around by the system i mean usually what why kids land themselves in these kind of residential treatment facilities is because Their behavior is either so out of control that the state has determined that they will house them um, because if they stay with their parents, uh, things will go really badly as they have been for years, or their parents can't house them um, and the kids have sort of blown out of foster care. So usually the kids that end up in these residential treatment facilities, if you're in the United States... Are some of the most behaviorally challenged, what we'll say, uh, kids that exist in your community. Um, another way to put them is that they're very oppositional. They're prone to, uh, um, you know, aggressive or um, problematic behaviors, uh, over sexualized, drug use, addiction, um, overreactivity, um, you know, just. Lots of things now it's possible that that's not the population you're working with, but I suspect that it is you know deeply entrenched eating disorders and burgeoning borderline you know there's there's just a lot of uh difficulty you know teenagers are tough anyway, but um, with this it's even rough it's it's uh, literally a hundred times worse um so you just have to lower your expectations and recognize that you're you're in a very very difficult situation that it wouldn't be unusual for you to see no improvement in any of the people that you're working with. Often these people are marginalized, racism, sexism, transphobia, homophobia, um, poverty. They're in gangs. They're, you know, heavy drug use, drug, uh, you know, dealing, mental illness, absent parents, criminal problems. Um, You know, usually it's several of these things. Uh, So, you know, a lot is working against you. Also, you mentioned that your co-workers don't care. That is rough. The times when I have worked in residential treatment facilities, everyone really cared. The coworkers were very good at what they did. And I was, I mean, I guess this was before they had phones, uh, before you had mobile phones. So there wasn't anything to do. And people had to work, (laughs) I guess. So um, there's that. But... I when I worked in these facilities, I was young, I was like 24. And I really relied on these more experienced people. And I I just followed their lead. And um, I never got the respect from the kids the way these more seasoned workers did. Um, So there's that. Uh, So that's going to be tough. If you're the new person, and the more experienced people don't seem to care, and they're on their phones all the time that's going to be a tough one. That's a big, it's a big burden you're taking on yourself that I don't necessarily think is fair to you. So, you know, do what you can, but lower your expectations, watch your burnout because you're no good to them. If you're burning out, you're no good to them. If you quit also don't let your guard down unless you know, you can take it. These kind of kids, sometimes they know just where to hit you. When I worked in one treatment facility, it was, it was just for like five kids and this one african american girl blasted me i don't even know i don't even remember what she said to me but it was literally 25 years ago and i can remember her face i remember where we were we were it was a renovated split level house in um linwood everett area here in seattle and i uh was you know just like you I was you know eager and trying and felt insecure and didn't really have the respect of the kids and just felt for my eight-hour shift. I was just like barely holding on. And this this girl uh, who had a sharp tongue with everyone else turned her attentions on me, and I was in the crosshairs, and she blasted me with something, and I just started crying. <laughs> and I'm not that sort of person. I don't, I don't just like tear up in the middle of but she got me so hard. And I remember after that moment, and I've talked about this before, that – I realized that unless I toughen up, I'm not going to survive in this profession. Um, this is when I was training to become a therapist. And so I was, you know, getting low-level jobs in, in you know, sort of the field. And this was one of them. <laughs> and uh, I said, you know, if I'm going to be working with teenagers in my career, I got to like toughen up. And I remember what I did is I said, I can't be like I am normally. I can't be open. I have to um, be careful. Um, these are people who are, who can't really be trusted. You know, you can't trust them with your heart. So, so don't let your guard down unless, um, you know, you can take it because you don't want to suffer in that way. It doesn't mean you don't have compassion because you do. It doesn't mean you don't have empathy because you do, but you don't put your whole ego on the line, if that makes any sense. Um, you're asking another question, What's your place with these kids? You know, what's your role? Uh, I don't know. You tell me. (laughs) Like, what's your job description say? What does your supervisor want you to do? You're not a therapist, so I'm guessing you're there to watch them, maybe react when something bad happens or contact the appropriate people when something bad happens or, I don't know, just facilitate mealtime and... Uh, make sure they stay in their rooms when they're supposed to be in their rooms doing homework or something. Like, usually that's the kind of responsibilities that you're supposed to be doing. But you're telling me that the kids don't respect you. And what it sounds like to me, based on on your email, is that you have a terrible supervisor. Your supervisor should be telling you what your role is. Your supervisor should be telling you how to gain their respect. Your supervisor should be actually... The one protecting you from the kids, the, the su- their supervisor should be the one facilitating your integration into the system. Um, you know, you really should be asking your supervisor these questions. And from the sound of it, you don't have a good supervisor. So, uh, maybe your supervisor is on is one of the people on the phones. I don't know, but you're in a kind of a doomed situation if you don't. If if your supervisor is terrible and your coworkers are terrible you're doomed. Like the whole situation is doomed. <laughs> um, uh, depending, you know, maybe the best thing to do is for you to go on your phone too. Maybe, maybe it's bet Maybe that's the homeostasis of the group. It's like, well, it's best if we just kind of lay low and stay calm and let them work the stuff out on their own and don't have a lot of fraternization between the staff and the clients, you know, I don't know. But, um, so I, the fact that you are new and you're asking all these questions indicates to me that you don't there's not good leadership. The next question you have is, how should you treat them? Well, one, you shouldn't quote unquote, treat them because you're not a clinician. But if you're asking like how do you react to them, um, which is a big difference, right? Uh, when If you're a clinician, you have your you have a, the training and the expertise around like conceptualization conceptualizing the problem engaging the person in the treatment plan, engaging in that treatment plan, you are not part of that system. Now, if there is someone who is in charge of the treatment, you know, maybe there's an on-site therapist or a therapist that's involved with the kids. You know, you want to go to that clinician and your supervisor, I guess, to say, like, you know, what's my role regarding what I'm supposed to, you know, am I supposed to be helping them with their trauma? Am I supposed to be helping them respect people more? Am I supposed to make them feel, you know, what, what, how am I, I know we're supposed to be helping on some level. Like, what am I supposed to be doing and how do I do it? So, um but in general, like if I was to answer a question like how should you react in general to kids like this, um, you know, it depends because it depends on the kid. I, I worked with a wide variety of, of kids back in the day, uh, both in homes and, in, you know, clinically. In general, you can't go wrong by being a stable presence, meaning that you don't give up. You don't overextend yourself. You don't end up yelling at them you don't end up pulling away from them. You know, you're you're there, you're stable. Uh, when they push your buttons, you you know the right thing to say where it doesn't escalate the situation. Um, you know when to ask for help, you know, for other staff members. The other thing is, is um, if you're really dedicated to helping these kids, like don't give up because it can, it can be very demoralizing given what you're talking about. So if you can, try not to give up. And reach out to them, you know, don't, don't assume that because they're, you know, snotty teenagers, or they're having trouble, or they're not following your directions. Don't assume that that means that they, they aren't desperate for you to care about them and notice them. Um, Often these kids are, um, you know, more immature than other kids their age, but they try to act tough. There's, you know, there's a shit ton, teenagers in general act tough, but Particularly, these kids connect, can act off. Not always, but um, so it helps to see them accurately, which is that they're suffering greatly, that they're immature, meaning that they haven't been given a chance to mature, and that parts of them are still two years old, five years old. And if you see them that way, then it helps to conceptualize, conceptualize them accurately, which helps you to know what to do. Like if you have a seventeen-year-old who is refusing to, you know, pick up their stuff from the living room or something. And you're now, uh, it's tempting to look at that. Well, he's 17. He's almost an adult. He should be able to do this kind of stuff. Well, emotionally, in some moments of the day, he might be a three-year-old. And so we don't ask a three, when we ask a three-year-old to pick up their stuff, we understand that they might have an emotional meltdown, which might make it hard for them to do that. And we take it easy on them. It doesn't mean that we don't, you know, stay dedicated to them picking up their stuff, but it means we're a little bit more accommodating. And so the 17-year-old could have a, you know, tough guy, 17-year-old version of a three-year-old meltdown. And if you recognize it, then it helps to, one, to sort of cope with it. Because if he lashes out to you, you'd be like, well, you know, he's immature and um, he's feels threatened or, you know, he's he hasn't had enough sleep today or something. Um, you know, and with all the trauma that they've been through and all the transference that they're going to do to you, You just have to, again, just see that and not overreact to it at the very least, not to take it personally. And at best then, you know, to be more attuned to their feelings, you can even say things like, so I must be really frustrating to you right now, you know, or, um, you seem like you really don't want me to bother you about, uh, this, this task right now, or, um, you know, I understand that you really don't want to do this. I I get that. I'm with you on that one. Um. However, it's a rule that everyone picks up their stuff in the living room. So um, it'd be really helpful. You know, you could be a, a really, you know, helpful person if, if you did that for me right now. And then you ask, H- how do I make them respect me more? God, that is a tough one. Um, your supervisor should not only be helping you with that, but should actually be uh, modeling that for you, should be buffering, you know, you and the kids, if you've never been trained in that, um, it is a tough thing. I mean, wrangling uh, kids in high school, just, you know, non-behaviorally challenged 12-year-olds in high school, that is a specialized skill. (laughs) The ability to control a group of teenagers is a very, very specialized skill. And I can relate to being thrown to the wolves like that before. Um, You know, early in my career I'm you know 27 years old and the agency I worked at they would just send me to schools and I would run these groups for behaviorally challenged kids in the school so I would get the you know the 15 most rebellious acting outest kids in all of the high school uh, I did one at Linwood High School I did one at uh, Sacagawea Middle School down in uh, Federal Way and the Uh, I had no idea I was doing. (laughs) Like, I was barely out of my teens myself. I had, you know, no experience uh, corralling a bunch of kids, particularly kids who were challenging. And I was just making it up as I went along. And I remember one time, I was just completely out of control of this one group. And there was this one, there was these two women, these two girls, these two teenage girls who were very vocal. And one of the girls i just turned to her and i was just like you know you you're making you seem to be interrupting everything i do you seem to make sure that everything i do doesn't work so today you're going to run the group cuz i was just i was just frustrated you know i'm just like i can't take it anymore like why am i doing this you know my fuck my life you know i'm not getting paid i was getting paid 13 dollars an hour and i'm just like I'd much rather be back at the office doing my regular family therapy stuff. Like, this is awful. And so I just turned around. I was like, okay, next hour, hour and a half, you're in charge. Um, You know, we're supposed to be doing anger management today, so you do it. And I thought it was just going to turn into a shit show. And at that point, I was just like, I don't care. You know, what do you do? fire me? (laughs) Uh, I don't care. Like, this sucks. And so I handed over, and she turn on a dime and became extremely responsible and led a very, very good, uh, meeting and everyone respected her cause they knew her and she had a sharp tongue and she got everyone in line and she, you know, it, it wasn't a very buttoned up, uh, therapy group therapy session, but it was much better than the way I was running it. And from that point forward, she was in charge of the group. And I just was kind of like an advisor to her. <laughs> and I did not think that was going to happen. But and if you would have asked me, like, you know, that one girl and, you you know, do you think you could hand over the group to her? I'd be no way. She would she would take the reins and run everyone into the into the ground like there's she's so disrespectful. She's so immature. She's so terrible. Uh, why would I hand the, the reins over to her? That is like the worst thing ever in it, but it totally worked. And it's one of those things of just like one, getting creative to having faith in kids, because a lot of the times the way they're acting is because they've never been respected. And so they, why would they respect other people if they've never been respected? And so part of gaining their respect is to be respectful of them. And by me handing over the group, I think, it was respecting her authority, and then she was okay with me. Anyway, so yeah, it's tough. Um, it's tough to get them to respect you. Again, your supervisors should be helping with that. Um, it depends, kid by kid. Some kids need a firm hand. Some key, some kids need a soft hand. Some kids will never respect you no matter what you do. But in general, there's some key elements. One is is don't get rattled, like. Be professional, you know, don't have any meltdowns. Don't, you know, throw your hands up in the air the way I did <laughs> and say, like, I can't take this anymore. Like, just, you know, stay calm. That's a big thing is as you lose your cool, they will one, lose their cool and two, they will just lose respect for you. They, they uh, These kinds of kids, generally speaking, respect people who can withstand their bullshit. So it doesn't mean you have to take it. It doesn't mean you have, to, but that doesn't necessarily mean you have to fight back, but it just means that, you know, you don't like crumble under the pressure. You know, you can sort of laugh it off. Like one strategy, again, it depends because there's so many different types of situations, but let's say, you know, you're trying to get control and one of the kids like talks back at you Um there's a lot of different strategies, but one of the strategies is just to be like, yeah, yeah, I get it. You know, you're trying to make jokes, but I still need you to do this. So, you know, you just stay the course. You know, one of the kids makes fun of your outfit. Instead of, like, trying to justify, hey, you know, you know," and getting rattled and hurt by that, you're just like, ha-ha, yeah, very fun. Maybe there's five kids laughing at you, you know, and you just got to be like, um, okay, you know, I get that you're making jokes about my outfit, you know. I guess I'm not on the cutting edge of fashion. Um, who would have thunk it? I'm not. Uh, I'm not a kid anymore, <laughs> um, but I still need you guys to listen to me. So there's a certain steadiness to the approach, you know. Like another, like bad approaches in general. Say the kid, the kids insult your outfit, and you genuinely get hurt by that. Well, that could undermine your, you know, respect. Or you strike back at them, like, well, your outfit isn't looking so good either. Or you ramp up your anger. You're like, okay, you know, that's two demerits. You're grounded or whatever kind of, you know, disciplinary system you have. You know, if you get real rattled by things, like, they'll lose respect for you. So you want to be able to hang with them, but you don't want to be like them, if that makes any sense. Again, it depends. You know, some kids, they they will respect you more if you do react. So it's hard to know. Um, the other thing is, is don't say anything that you can't follow through on. Like, don't say there's going to be consequences unless you know that there will be, you know, particularly that your team will support you on. Um, a helpful tip that I did was trying to get one-on-one time with people because these kids are attention deprived. And when you pay attention to them, they, they kind of eat it up. And when it's one-on-one time, they're not trying to show off in front of the other kids, and so a lot of times you can really bond one-on-one. You know, just take him. Uh, one of the one of the things in these residential treatment facilities is similar in prison, I suppose. The inmates get very focused on tiny privileges. You know, like when you're in prison, from what I've seen in the movies, they get very focused on things like. Um, extra food or cigarettes and this sort of thing, you know, little things. Well, it's similar to these residential treatment facilities. They'll they get because their lives are so limited and their options are so limited. They can become very focused on like certain kind of snacks or outings or something. And so, if you have that freedom, you could just initiate certain kinds of programs. Like, okay, people, today, if every if if you follow my directions um, throughout the day. Um, then you and all your other people who follow directions all day are, I'm going to take you all to a movie or I'm going to take you to a pizza thing or I'm going to take you to the video game place or I'm going to take you to bumper cars or I'm going to take you um, just out (laughs) just to get out of the... Kids, sometimes if you do it right, they will become obsessed with winning whatever you're trying to give out there. (laughs) Or you have like... I don't know, an iPod that you want to give out or I don't know, you know, whatever within reason, budget wise. Um, it could even just be like a bag of Doritos for crying out loud. Like sometimes, you know, these kids, they'll they'll just go crazy. Now, of course, you have to run that by your supervisor. <laughs> um, but outings can be pretty uh, low uh, maintenance, right? You know, going to the mall with three kids that were good during the day and follow rules. Like, um, you know, kids love that kind of stuff. Get out, get out of town, you know, get, get out of the, the facility, stretch their legs, Uh, you know, so using that can help, but you got to be charismatic with it. You can't just be like, so everyone, I have a thing, you know, you got to like get in their face and be like, okay, people. Today, I'm going to start a thing, and you're going to you know, listen to this. And whoever wants to – and maybe the first few times, the kids, not, they're not into it. But if you stay consistent, you know, they'll they'll get in line with it. Because the thing is, is, as you've been listening to this podcast and the attachment stuff, is that in all likelihood, all of them have massive attachment injuries. And so if someone shows them consistency and resilience and is – Uh, Good and pays attention to them and has energy toward them, even if it's clunky and sort of inexperienced, they will eat it up. But they have to trust you, right? And you're asking that it's like, how do I get them to trust me? Consistency, man, like, Um, now part of the problem with some of these residential treatment things is like the kids are kind of temporary, like they'll only be in there for a few weeks or a couple months and that's not really enough time. So that's, that's why I want to just bring it back to like, you got to know what's possible and you got to lower your expectations to that. It's tough, you know, given your circumstances, you might be doomed in terms of all your hopes. There might be no way to actually get any of them to really open up and trust you. In a way that you really hope. Um, There might be no way to see any kind of improvement in any of the kids um, the way that you hope to, given the circumstances and your coworkers and the lack of leadership and all that kind of stuff. And so part of it is just like, you know, I'm going to do what I can, but I have to realize that there's not much I can do. And that's a failing of the system. You know, if we had more money uh, allocated tax dollars to this sort of thing, we could actually make a difference. Um, And some group homes are. I mean, like I said, the the two group homes I worked in had excellent therapists, had excellent supervisors, had excellent workers. And I was like coming into it going like, wow, you know, that woman is so good with the kids. I remember I had this one supervisor that just knew how to control all of them. She wasn't there all the time, though, (laughs) was the thing. But I would watch her when she would walk in, like all the kids would snap to attention. She knew exactly what to say. She was very firm but she was nice. And um, I never even got close to what she did. (laughs) Part of it was it wasn't really my gig. I didn't really expect to be doing that long term. And I didn't. But anyway, so the bottom line is, I hope you're getting paid really well, (laughs) because this sort of work is rough. So all right, let's go on to another email. But first, let's take a break. (laughs) All right. We're back from the break. This next email is from patron Lucas. He writes, my name is Lucas and I am a 16 year old boy from Denmark. Uh, I've gained a huge interest in psychology over the past year or so. And I dream of being a therapist one day. I have fallen in love with the subject and with the thought of helping people get through traumas and getting back to a happy life. I spoke to my mother about it and she immediately turned down the idea. Her argument is that it takes a huge mental toll on therapists to listen to people's sad stories, and you're actually able to help, and you're not actually able to help them with their actual problems like physical abuse. She says that I am way too sensitive, and I would quote take their problems home, take their problems with me home, Uh, you know, take you know problems home. Basically, that I would care too much. And it would make me emotionally cold, as it has made every other therapist she knows uh, this way. It really worries me, as she is, as she very well could be right. I want to hear a therapist take on this. If do you agree with her? What other options do I have? I'm thinking of becoming a psychologist or a professor in psychology, but that would take a lot of experience, right? End of email. Yeah. So just answering your last question, um, becoming. a a psychoanalyst or a professor. um, Yeah, it takes a lot of experience. You, you're 16 years old, it might be 10, 12 years before you even see your first client. (laughs) Um, Maybe not that long, but you know, it kind of depends. So uh, yeah, um, you know, it's a it's a big undertaking that you shouldn't do lightly. Um, So I don't know you and I don't know your mom. I I don't know what she's seeing. She very would, she very well could be right about you. Um, she's your mom. She cares about you. Uh, she knows you better than other people. You know, maybe everything she's telling to you is right. Uh, I don't know. But in general, therapists don't take their clients' problems home with them. It's, it's a huge myth. Um, even people who are very sensitive to that sort of thing. I mean, I, I've trained hundreds of people, thousands maybe. Uh, I have seen a wide variety of people who are very sensitive to their clients' issues and there are definitely some people who are more sensitive to their clients issues, but I've never seen it crush anybody. And I've never seen it ruin someone's um, career or life. It, it might affect people's lives, but it, it's not intolerable um there might be intolerable moments like a day or two out of a month but um, with time and with experience with support with supervision with your own therapy um you know you'll get through it the vast majority of people do i think i've only experienced maybe one or two people who couldn't handle it and i'm not even sure if it was the clients they couldn't handle but like certain aspects of the work that they couldn't handle or the the stress of their challenge their perfectionism that kind of thing Uh, but yeah uh you know, we most therapists, in fact the vast majority, don't take their clients' problems home with them, in general to the point where it actually like degrades their life. Um, It's uh the nice thing about being a professional though is that so one thing I realized early in my career was that for a lot of my life I had been trying to be a therapist with a lot of people, friends and other people. But I was never really getting fully satisfied, because of course, my friends didn't think of me as their therapist, but I was really trying to help them. Then when when I became a therapist, it became so much easier. And I stopped trying to therapize my friends and family, because I had an outlet for my energies. And so, uh, um, you know, that was another big help, if that makes any sense. That kind of relates to what you're talking about. also, generally speaking, it doesn't take a huge mental toll on therapists. That's another myth. Um, your mom also talks about that therapists just listen to sad stories. This is another myth. It's a total misunderstanding, a misconceptualization of the reality of therapy. Uh, I, as a therapist, have been practicing for over 20 years. I have never once thought that my job was just listening to sad stories. <laughs> I mean, clients come in to talk about a lot of things. And sometimes they're sad, for sure. But usually sadness is not the uh, main sort of focus. Usually it's um, hurt, confusion, anger, um, you know, dreams that they want to have. They just want to vent Things that are going well, you know, people will sit down and say, "My marriage is going better." Let me tell you about it. And we'll talk. Great. What you know? What are you doing well? Um, so it runs the gamut in terms of like the emotionality of a of a session. So um, you know, we don't just you know, people who have that point of view. I find have a very stigmatized view of what therapy is that, you know, clients just come in and they complain about their lives. And a, a therapist just listens and strokes their ego and says, it's not your fault. And that's what therapy is. It's like, no, <laughs> that's, that's not what therapy is. Um, now, your mom also said something like, you can't actually change the circumstances of their life. And that's true. Like, we can't, go to their home and stop their parents from abusing them, you know, for sure. But we can absolutely help them change their lives in very meaningful ways, and we can actually treat things about them that will actually change. I mean, I have literally cured people of their post-traumatic stress disorder, and I will gladly take responsibility for that because... It was me. Now, the client had to go along with it, and the client had to do the majority of the work, but I was the one that did it in the same way that, you know, uh, I don't know, like I coached someone to get a gold medal in the Olympics. If I'm a coach and I was there, you know, helping them, now, the athlete did all the work, but I was there telling them what to do, and I was there supporting them, and I was, you know, I knew the regiment. I knew that if they didn't have me, they wouldn't have been able to do it, Um I have been a part of that you know i 've helped to cure people of their ptsd i 've helped to cure people of their personality disorders where they had absolute borderline personality disorder, and three years later they did not i 've helped to cure people 's drug addiction to heroin alcohol you know all sorts of things um, and so on. you know I know that about myself i 've had I have the track record most therapists, if not all, do have track records like that. So, you know, this notion that like therapy is pointless and, you know, you, you can't really change people's lives and it's just a, a bunch of people complaining and therapists just saying it's not your fault. That's that's not what therapy is. That's not what any therapist sets out to do. Um, you know, your mom also claims that it will make you emotionally cold. Um, that's not usually what happens. Now, you certainly can, can become burnt out. And, you know, Denmark, I don't know if this is where you're, you say you're from Denmark, it sounds like that's where you're living. I don't know what the mental health system is like in Denmark, I have a hard time believing it's that different from the United States. Um, But it could be. And it's possible that the system is really broken in Denmark, and a lot of therapists are burnt out, I don't know. But in, in general, in my, you know, city, it doesn't make people emotionally cold at all. In fact, it probably produces the opposite. I have become much more compassionate towards my fellow man as I, you know, gain experience as a therapist. Because with every client, with everyone I talk to, I am extended to understand human beings in more deeper, real ways, and stereotypes and distancing in my mind uh, is more and more shed as I grow older. You know, I hope you know, listeners out there, that I have compassion for. People that I don't agree with, politicians I don't agree with, I have compassion for those people. I don't want to insult their um, the way their hair looks, or the way their hands look, or their their weight, or the way that they talk, or something. I find that to be really mean. If you disagree with their political stance and you disagree with how they vote on things, then you know that's your that's your duty as as an American. But to insult people like that's just not cool. That's that's hurtful and. It goes both ways, you know, and, and and so I don't participate in that kind of thing. I don't want to ridicule anybody. That doesn't it – hurt, it hurts me to see other people ridicule people. And that has been at least partially due to my expansion of my compassion through therapy. You know, a big speech I always give the therapist, and I've said this before, is – before you decided to become a therapist, you could be a regular person. Upon deciding to become a therapist and entering graduate school, you can no longer be a normal person in that you can't just section off certain human beings as the other You know, everyone does this. Everyone's just like, oh, you know, Democrats are the other. Republicans are the other. Immigrants are the other. Women are the other. You know, uh, people who believe in astrology are the other. Uh, Atheists are the other. Like Everyone has this distancing, you know, like, oh, those people who have long toenails are the other. You know, we can if you're a regular human being. You have the freedom to do that. You can just be like, those people are dumb. They're gross. I don't want to talk to them. They should go away. I wish they would fall off the face of the planet. You know, uh, people who are on YouTube showing off their cars, you know, for example. Um, Whatever your thing is, you know, I don't like those people. When you become a therapist, you can't be that way anymore. You can't otherize people because those people are going to come to you and they depend on you and you have an ethical responsibility, a moral responsibility to have full compassion for that person and not to have any less compassion for them because they represent a group, a cultural group that you don't um, identify with or you're not cool with, or your cultural group is supposed to hate that cultural group. You can't be that way anymore. You can no longer walk around and say, oh, gross, ew, you know, you can't do that anymore it's natural to do it, but you have to strive not to because those people are going to come into your office and you have to welcome them emotionally with open arms. So um, through that, you know, one actually becomes more compassionate and less emotionally cold. So, you know, now, again, some people get burnt out and they become emotionally cold for sure. The bottom line is, uh, Lucas, is that you are young, you are 16, you have many years to think about this. Uh, The likelihood that this current dream will become the dream in the end is actually pretty low. Research shows that people change their career aspirations um, at, at least a handful of times before they actually um, decide on a on an early career in their mid-twenties. So, uh, you know, just now maybe you'll stick with it. Maybe you'll change it five times and it'll come back to this. I don't know. Um, only you will find out that. I mean, we'll all find out that only you are on that journey. So you know, keep exploring it. Keep your options open. Um, you'll figure it out. Keep me updated. Let me know how it goes. You know, I'm certainly here to help. Um, you know, I help a lot of people with their careers, and so um, you know, I'm a good resource for that. Uh, you always want to have mentors and people that uh, know the ropes. Now, I don't know Denmark, so you know, you'll want to find someone in your area whom you can look up to and can. And, you know, that's the other thing that I'll tell you to do is. Find a therapist in your area whom you can ask these questions of. Because I don't know, maybe all Denmark, maybe all Danish therapists are completely burnt out. I don't know. Maybe your mom's right. (laughs) Um, So find people in your area and bounce ideas off them. Uh, You don't want to necessarily go to the general public when you're talking about this career. Because generally speaking, most people are not going to be supportive because of all the myths and the stigma around this sort of thing. So you have to find people who know what it's actually like and are not as biased, I guess. Anyway, let's go on to another email. But first, let's do some announcements. Uh, Please, please, please become a patron of the podcast. And if you can, become an upper tier patron. That's always cool when people do that. You get more swag. But also, you know, it just lets us know that um, you care even more if you, can afford it. <laughs> also review us on iTunes. You know, I keep asking people, I, I haven't looked recently, but eventually we're going to read all the most recent, um, you know, we did an episode a year or So ago where we read all the reviews on iTunes, particularly um, the more interesting ones. And so if you go to iTunes and leave reviews, the reason why we want people to do that is because the more reviews, the more likely our podcast is going to be like listed as a featured podcast. From what I understand. And so, then more people find us, you know, that kind of thing. Also know that when you become a patron, you will get access to all of our premium episodes, which are arguably our best episodes. Also, you will not have to listen to ads. Also, a certain portion of your monthly pledge goes towards various charities that we support. We've raised thousands of dollars for a lot of charities, which is fantastic. Thank you so much, patrons, for doing that. Also, if you want to contact me, go to the website, use the contact us page. That's the best way. Do not contact me through Facebook or Instagram or YouTube or anything. You know, go to the website, use the contact us page. Many of you are doing that, which is great. Join us on YouTube live Thursdays, two o'clock Seattle time. Also, uh, you know, all of our major conversations happen on Facebook. Um, You know, I'll often like throw out a question for people like, I'm prepping for an episode on this, you know, what, what are your thoughts about this? And I genuinely will use your comments to help me prep for episodes. So you could really help me out if you join the Facebook page and participate in that. Um, Let's see, if you are a patron right now, and you're having trouble accessing older episodes or episodes in general, make sure you contact me, I can help you with that. Also, what else here on my little list? Uh, That's probably about it. Okay, so the next email here is, let's read it. Okay, this next email is from Anonymous Patron. They ask, I wanted to ask you as a colleague about your experience with the very specific dissociation I'm seeing with clients with combat-related PTSD. I've been in practice for as long as you have. I work in England as a psychotherapist, combat-related PTSD seems so unique. Worldwide, soldiers are suffering. I've discovered something that is incredibly common in combat-related PTSD. They call it doing a runner. Doing a runner. Uh, Doing a runner is not going AWOL. When, When they do a runner, the soldier will just start running away often without preparation or adequate protection. It seems dissociative because they lose hours or days during these states of memory. It seems to be a major concern to many in the military. Many soldiers go missing this way. Is this something unique to veterans? Certainly traumatized clients dissociate, and some do go through fugue states, but this seems different to me. I can't seem to find enough research or literature on this specific phenomenon. I'm researching it out of fascination, and I plan to write an article for the British Association of Counseling and Psychotherapy's journal. End of email. Yeah, first off, it sounds to me that uh, it's it's similar to the second season of Serial. If Remember the hit podcast Serial? Uh, that was about Adnan Syed. Well, the second season was about a military... Uh, person, service member United States who uh, you know just walked away from his post in I believe Afghanistan and was um, captured by some people and was held hostage for many years or for a long time anyway and a lot of uh, people felt bad for him because he was a a hostage but a lot of the military people were like well why did he just walk away (laughs) from his post And there's all sorts of speculation, like he hated the military, or he wanted to join the enemy, or he did something like this, where he just did a runner and just, you know, had some sort of traumatic reaction and just wandered off. So, you know, there's a lot of speculation and, you know, no real clear evidence as to what happened. I mean, we have to kind of rely on his account of why he did it, and it's, you know, it's hard to believe him necessarily, so... It's something that I've heard about before, but I, I, so to answer your question, I will say that this isn't really my area. Um, I haven't heard of it. I I tried to do a little bit of, uh, I tried to find some research on it by searching my, you know, journal database, but I couldn't find anything that specifically discussed what you're talking about. Uh, it could, it's possible that it has been written about, but I don't know the search words. You know, I used a number of different search words, doing a runner came up with nothing. Um, So, yeah, I, too, can't really find any research on it. Um, From your description, yeah, it sounds like dissociation. Trauma leads to dissociative defenses to defend against the trauma. We want to check out as a way of coping. It's better to not be around mentally when the trauma is happening. It protects us. And then later when we're triggered, the defense will be activated. Sometimes when it's not adaptive to do so. And the signs are lack of memory, acting strange, um, not, you know, these kinds of things. uh, So it's possible, you know, that according to description, you have service members who are just running away or walking away from their post without preparation, without um, concern for their safety or their job, and they don't remember why they did it. Uh, certainly is in line with dissociation for sure, and we could imagine why that would happen being in a war zone or having that sort of job can be highly stressful and could absolutely trigger um, you know dissociation. What I will say is that for most people, they will have had to have developed a dissociative defense when they were very young, meaning that they were terrorized when they were you know zero through five and developed a dissociative potential back then that was triggered probably throughout their life, but particularly while they're in the military in a state of stress. So uh, that's one thing to think about. It's not common for people who didn't already have a dissociative defense to develop it for the first time in their adult life as a soldier. But, you know, it's possible, particularly if there were sort of like mild dissociative defenses that were developed early in life. Hard to know. Um, so there's that. Um, also it could be some kind of rational response to the stress of war. Like, um, you're in a, you know, for a lot of military folks, there are brief moments of terror and long moments of just, uh, of boredom, you know, but the moments of boredom, every soldier knows, particularly in a certain contexts that at any moment, like a, a mortar round could kill them or Um, you know, if there was a raid from the enemy all of a sudden, so there's this awareness that at any given moment, like a bullet could go through your head, literally, and people are dying all the time. And so it's a very rational thing to be terrified. So when we're terrified, it's also, you know, somewhat rational to just run. And so it's possible that it's not dissociative at all. It's just sort of a, you know, a desperate act of a desperate situation. Also, it could be panic. It could be panic disorder, a panic attack of some sort. Um, one can lose memory during a panic attack uh, if if your brain is denied oxygen uh, because, and that's something that happens during a the physiological response of panic. Memories not might not be encoded quite right. Uh, also, lack of sleep. If, you know, you can imagine being in a war zone and your sleep is disrupted quite a bit. Uh, a lot of these military folks will do uh, weird shifts, you know, where they do three, um, you know, night shifts and then one all day shift and their sleep is all wacky. And so uh, sometimes you can have waking dreams where you just wander off. Essentially, you're you're you sleepwalking um, head injuries from just, you know, random things and from uh, IEDs can cause there to be some anomalous behavior and motivation drug use could also lead to problems and frankly malingering meaning faking to get transferred to a better location um, could also be um, part of it you know i don't know i'm just speculating so yeah sounds interesting i don't know anything about it uh let me know uh you know if you plan to write an article send me the article so i can learn more and so i can share it on our facebook page Okay, this next email is from a upper-tier anonymous patron. They write, I have bipolar that I manage well most of the time. Recently, I had a short bout of mania. Since my diagnosis two years ago, I couldn't remember having any mania, uh, just consistent hypomania during my up cycle, and experiencing the mania was very scary to me. I rarely show much emotion during my sessions with my therapist, but this recent event was something I struggled to talk about. During my session, as I talked about it, I became visibly upset, which is something very uncomfortable for me to show. And I noticed that my therapist was reflecting my emotion and I sensed that he was getting uncomfortable as well, almost mirroring my exact emotions. This has happened in past sessions, but it is when we have talked about my depression. Again, in session, I would get upset about feeling so depressed and see that he was also becoming upset. Several months ago he actually brought it up that he gets a helpless feeling when I am struggling. And for the record, he is not helpless and does a great job getting me through those moments. None of this feels alarming to me, but I do want to discuss it further with him at some point. I guess I am just really curious if this is projective identification. Is it really a is it is it related to transference and countertransference or is it something else? End of email. Yeah, sounds like you're in, in good hands. You have a good therapist. Um, you feel like your therapist is helping you and, and has gotten you through some ups and downs in your life, which is um, very hard to do, and, and so you have a very good therapist. Your therapist mirrors your emotions, meaning that at the very least, your therapist really notices your emotions, which is fantastic and can feel very good as a client to know that your therapist gets you. And your therapist is moved. Your therapist um, is moved by your emotions. Your your therapist has emotional reactions to you. Your therapist is willing and confident and, you know, moral enough to say that he also feels helpless when you're in a difficult spot. And um, he is confident enough and, and likes you enough to share that with you, which you know it can be a very powerful idea of just like, okay, you know we're both in this together and we're we're both we both don't know what to do, and we both are you know very affected by the situation that's a incredible experience to have as a client and as a therapist, so yeah, you're asking, you know, should I keep discussing it with uh the therapist should I yeah, absolutely, just keep discussing it with them that's that's you know that's what therapist is for, and then you ask. Is it projective identification transference counter transference um, yeah it is <laughs> um, it depends on what we mean by the um, by the uh, the terms um, I might the de- definition that I use for counter transference is one that um, a lot of people use but not every not everybody which is that counter transference is just the emotional uh, and um, urge reactivity that therapists have in relation to the client's material and so As you are exhibiting sadness and depression or mania or difficulty, uh, that is producing a feeling in your therapist, which is what you're observing is him being upset and is him feeling hopeless. And that's, you know, it's countertransference, meaning that it is touching something in him. Maybe he identifies with it somehow or, you know, it reminds him of something or it's just something deep within him that, you know, emerges for him in, in reaction to you. Um, is it transference? Um, hard to tell because you're not really talking much about your own kind of issues of transference from your early relationships to him. So I don't know. Um, is it projective identification? Um, you know, could be. Again, it, it depends on what is going on for you. Um, because if, if you have bipolar and you're going through a what we might call a biological downswing in your moods then it doesn't necessarily have to do with anything, any early relationships that you had. It just has to do with your biological condition of bipolar. And so you're struggling with that, and your therapist is having a feeling about that. And, you know, we don't need to go beyond that in terms of conceptualization. But it's possible that your bipolar is actually related to early childhood things and early internalized relationships, and you're recreating that with him. Like, um, you are... Um, maybe you had a depressed parent and your parent made you feel very helpless in relation to their depression and um, through and and you internalize that relationship and then you recreate it with your therapist where you transferred to him how you felt when you were young and you become your parent so you are the one with the mood disorder and your therapist is now the one feeling helpless trying to help um, so, you know, that could be projective identification. I don't know uh, you didn't indicate anything along those lines. That doesn't mean it's unhealthy or anything. It just, you know, um, uh, you have bipolar and you have hypomania and you have depression and that's terrible and it's unfair to you. It's a, you know, terrible, it can be a terrible condition that, uh, can be very distressing and very difficult to deal with. And you have a good therapist who's helping you with that and who's willing to get into the trenches with you, which is great. So um, uh, the other thing I'll say is when I've treated people with bipolar and major depression, uh, I almost always feel helpless, too. Um, it, It's a very difficult, you know, I was talking to you earlier. It's like I, I can cure people of their PTSD. I, I have very strong confidence I can. Uh, If the client is willing to do the work, eliminate phobias and panic disorders, social anxiety. Um, I'm very confident that I can help people with addictions in the long term. Um, I'm very confident I can help people with personality disorders in the long term. But when it comes to bipolar and major depression, I am not very confident. Um, Maybe it's because... I haven't really specialized in that work because I haven't but I've certainly had dozens of clients, uh, particularly with major depression, um, not so much with bipolar but uh, but a fair amount you know maybe a couple dozen with bipolar as well over the years, not so much in recent times but in my early years for sure and it's the the rough part about major depression, any sort of mood disorder is that one they tend not to um, React all that great to uh, treatment, um, meaning that with PTSD, for example, I can, if you give me enough time and the client's willing to do the work, um, I, you know, we can eliminate the symptoms forever. But when it comes to major depression, a lot of it is just symptom management and attempting to take away the deep lows or knowing what to do when you have the deep lows. And that's a different prognosis, and it's a different approach. And there's less indication that your therapy is actually doing anything. Um, you know, when I, when I test people pre and post treatment for PTSD, even complex PTSD, and the, the measure clearly shows that they definitely had PTSD in the beginning, and at the end they didn't, and they had zero symptoms. That, you know, they're all zeros at the end. Uh, that's very clear. But when you're working with someone who has major depression, you might see over, you know, over time, like a slight reduction in the severity of the symptoms, you might see an increase in the ability to cope or, um, you know, this sort of thing. But, you know, when people are depressed, man, it it sucks. It is. um, It is no joke, man, it is it is breathtaking sometimes to be with people who are in that state. Um, as a therapist, because you're there to help, you're there to absorb, you're there to have empathy, you're there to be with them through the difficult times. And um, it's tough, you know, and I've done the work and, and I've helped people and I have a lot of colleagues, you know, therapy can literally save people's lives, keep them from killing themselves, keep them from drinking themselves into a a hole. Um, So I'm not going to say that I don't have some hope, and because there definitely is some, but it's it's tough. It's it's a very very difficult condition. If it's moderate to severe, um, it's very difficult to treat. Now, I will say for some people, um, they they can see symptom release symptom relief really quickly. Um, I can remember one client I had very early on who came to me with major depression, and within a few months. She had no symptoms, and that sustained for many months. And so um, – and I'm not going to say that it doesn't happen, but uh, but for – I've been with some clients for years who um, – it just seemed like no matter what we did, it the cycles would just come. And when they came, it was like a bomb going off in their soul. And – it would just lay waste for a couple months, you know, it was, it was, it's tough. It, I mean, the suffering is real, man. Like it is, it's just no joke. And so, um, for your therapist to be with you and upset and to feel helpless is congruent and normal and rational. It doesn't mean that there isn't hope. I always have hope. Absolutely. It doesn't mean that what you're doing isn't helpful because it probably is. Um, you know, you're still alive, you're still trucking, you're still improving, you're still going, you're still doing the thing. And, um, you know, sometimes that's the victory, you know, you are winning the race. And uh, I commend you for that. So um, anyway, if you have other questions about that, let me know. All right, well, let's adjourn, as I sometimes say in class this podcast episode and move on to our next thing that we are going to do. You know, whatever you're doing after list, or while some people are driving or doing laundry. If you're like me, you know, you're in the car, you're on your run, you're doing your laundry, you're taking the dog for a walk. Um, you're organizing your bookshelf, you're wrapping presents. What else do I do? when i Um, uh, you're organizing your receipts for your small business. Your, are um, what else do I do when I'm listening? working out, lifting weights, um, you know, walking from your car to your office, you know, all the all those kinds of things. Um, it's now time for us to continue doing those things without me connected to you. <laughs> and please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do.